and that blessing. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see that uh, not everyone has been impacted by the plague. And for those of you who are watching at home under quarantine, thank you for loving us to stay, uh, to stay at home under quarantine. <clears throat> We're glad you're here. An article appeared this past week in a newspaper called the Orlando Sentinel. And in that article, they were hyping up some data about a school voucher program that Florida has called Step Up for Students. And in that article about this school voucher program, it's one of these voucher programs where families can elect uh, to send their children to a private school, and that's a, both a tax funder, uh, I'm sorry, a tax-funded program plus a privately funded program. In that article, the, the statistics that they were talking about said this, referring to this school voucher program. It says that at least 14% of Florida's nearly 147,000 scholarship students in the last year attended private schools where homosexuality was condemned or at a minimum unwelcome. So you don't have to get far into this article to understand that what they're doing is providing an expose of what they consider to be a scandalous situation that state tax dollars are funding this scholarship program and parents are using it to send their children to these discriminatory schools in Florida. And some of these schools, for example, <clears throat> one school has a policy stating, one of these private Christian schools has a policy stating that uh, it denies admission to students if, if they or someone in their home are practicing a homosexual lifestyle or alternative gender identity, or beyond that, are promoting such practices. So there's this push going on in the state of Florida. It just came out this, this past week. It was exposed for lawmakers to disallow this program, these school vouchers, to be used in schools with these kinds of policies. Now, the story gets a bit more interesting. There was a related story that appeared in the Washington Post that two major banks that had been feeding this scholarship program are now going to pull out of the program. Uh, it was Wells Fargo and Fifth Third. And one of the banks stated that it was pulling funding until more inclusive policies have been adopted by all participating schools. So this is a major move in this continued storm, or maybe I should say gap, of morality in the United States. Um, there was a statement, actually a couple of statements I want to share with you, uh, made by Al Mohler. He's, he was responding to this. He's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he was my source in, in a lot of these, these topics that I'm referring to right now. And he, he says this about these Christian schools in Florida. He, he says the message to Christian schools is this. Christian schools, abandon your Christian convictions. They're not allowed anymore. Get in line and march in step to the moral revolution. 
there is this sort of moral revolution that's going on in our country. And it's quite systemic. He goes on and makes another statement that in regard to this new sort of moral climate that we find ourselves in, he says the fact is that we are looking at a moral revolution. That is a revolution in morality that has happened so fast that in one lifetime, or even just part of a lifetime, you can see an entire moral universe turned upside down. And with turning the entire moral universe upside down, the moral revolutionaries now want to shake the world in order to find out which schools and which people and which churches and which institutions are going all out of the order. Now, do you see what it is that he's saying here? He goes on to say, it may be that there are some out there, especially in states other than Florida, who are saying, well, we're safe from this kind of a threat because we don't have a similar voucher program. Don't fool yourself. This kind of logic and the coercion that comes with it is coming for you and for your school, if not on the basis of a voucher, then something else very fast and you can count on it. You see, these are strange times that we are living in. Frankly, we're going into a lot of uncharted waters. And what's going to happen when it's your business that's highlighted as not supporting or supporting a church that has these sort of discriminatory practices, policies, and ideas? What's going to happen if someone comes after you for being part of a church that maintains a biblical view of sexuality? Because this is being less and less tolerated in the culture that we're living in. And maybe you've already encountered this. Uh, maybe you're a school teacher right now that's starting to feel the pinch of this systemic issue that keeps on filtering its way right down through the system, through the government, down to us individually. In the face of this world and this current culture, as Christians living with this Christian worldview, how do we, frankly, stand strong in the strange times that we're encountering? And you can boil the question down to this. How can we stay faithful? How can we stay faithful? Even in singing those songs this morning, did you catch the words? Praising God in the middle of what? A battleground. A storm. This is the reality that we live in. And it's becoming closer and closer to home as we're seeing the culture now playing out its own beliefs and its own ideas. So this is the topic I want to talk about today. Staying faithful. How do we stay faithful when the pinch comes more and more and gets closer and closer to home? The passage I want to look at today comes from Hebrews chapter 3. We're actually going to look at the entire chapter. Uh, I want to start out by reading verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in a heavenly calling, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess, who is faithful to the one who appointed him, as Moses was also in God's house. For he has come to deserve greater glory than Moses. 
just as the builder of a house deserves greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are of his house if, in fact, we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope we take pride in. You may be seated. We're continuing to go through this series on Hebrews, and throughout the book of Hebrews, we see this strong theme of persevering in the faith. I, I love the phrase, don't stop believing. I think that really captures what we're talking about in the book of Hebrews. Now, I want to say this at the get-go. I do not believe that people lose their salvation. I think that's one of the confusing parts of the passages that we're going into. I don't believe that we can unredeem that which God has already redeemed. So I want to clear that out at the beginning. We are going to go through this passage. There are these measures, though, of unbelief that cause consequences for Christians. You can think of it as degrees of unbelief that we're going to see that are, that are hazardous to Christian health, you could say. So I want to go into this passage this morning and look at it this way. First, we'll see the positive example that Christ exemplifies faithfulness. Secondly, we'll look at the negative example of these Israelites who exemplify faithlessness. And then finally, we'll talk about, well, how do we remain faithful? There are four actions that I believe spring out of this, this text for us to take as we seek to, to keep our faithfulness, to maintain solidity in our belief that our walk is matching our talk and that disobedience doesn't follow disbelief. So let's go into this, this text now. I want to take a closer look at those verses that we just read. And we see that Jesus is being lifted up as this example of faithfulness. And we have this comparison going on between Jesus and Moses. Now remember, we're talking to Hebrews, right? Jews, and they, had, they very much esteemed Moses. So the author is using Moses as kind of a catapult to show the superior faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we see in the very first verse, there's a therefore, right? So that signals he's, he's building on something that he's already said, and he's calling them holy brothers with each other and with Christ. They're sharing in a heavenly calling. All signals that the, the author firmly believes he's speaking to Christians. Um, they're partnering with Christ. And then Christ is called an apostle. Now, what does that mean that he's called an apostle? That, that word simply means one who was sent, that Jesus was sent by the Father to us. And then they call him a high priest. Now, this is a, a big theme in the book of Hebrews, this idea of Jesus being the ultimate high priest. So in order to understand that, you've got to, you've got to know that in the, in the Old Testament, the Jews looked at the, to the high priest as being their representative to God. The high priest acted on behalf of the people to God, offering sacrifices to atone for sins, um, representing the people. Now Jesus is the high priest. He's our high priest which is like the coolest thing ever. 
because that means that we now have direct access to God. And encapsulated within that, and I will be unpacking this more as we go, because this is kind of an abstract idea. There's a lot of abstract ideas in this passage. Uh, we operate as these believer priests. Christ is our high priest, but now we operate as priests, as they would see it in the Old Testament. That's a theme in other books. It's especially a central theme here in the book of Hebrews. Let me keep going forward. So, by Christ being our high priest, he smashed the barrier that stood between us and God the Father. We can now pray directly to God and do things that they didn't have the privilege of doing back in the Old Testament. More details on that in a minute. And then there's a discussion of Moses. It says there in verse 2, uh, Moses was faithful like Christ. It says he, con he constructed uh, God's house. He was in God's house. Um, he was, again, the builder, and he deserves honor, but not as much honor as Christ. What's, what's all that mean? <laughs> this is where it gets kind of abstract. This is a reference to the tabernacle. Okay, Moses was the builder of God's house. He was the one that was given instructions on in how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was... It was like a real fancy set of tents. And the Israelites, as they were um, moving around in the Old Testament, they would pack up the tabernacle and they would take it with them to the next spot the Lord designated. Within that inner tent uh, was the Holy of Holies. And the presence of God was literally in that inner tent. It, he resided in the Ark of the Covenant, just like in Indiana Jones, right? Uh, he resided there. His presence was there. I'll never forget I was teaching a kindergarten class, and a kid came up to me and said, um, so you mean Jesus lived inside the ark? Man, that was a good question. Now, God is spirit, and his presence in a special kind of way resided there in the ark in the Holy of Holies. And then the, the passage goes on to say that for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So, even though Moses built this, this tabernacle, Christ is superior because what was it that Jesus built? Well, everything, including Moses. So, Jesus deserves more honor. Even Moses himself was built by God. And then we get to verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken. And, and notice it says that Moses was a servant in God's house, but Christ is a son, a family member, who's over God's house. And then we get to the end, <clears throat> then we get to verse 6. And if we are his house, uh, I'm sorry, I switched those. The, the part about Christ was beginning of verse 6. The end of verse 6 then. Um, we are of his house. If in fact we, holdly, if, we, if we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope that we take pride in. Now, again, um, what does this phrase mean? So the author, notice he includes himself here. He says we are of his house. He's including himself. And he says we're what? His house. 
So we've moved from the house being the tabernacle, where the priests did all their work inside the tabernacle, that tent we saw the picture of, to the house being the people who are now doing the work or engaging in the priestly activities. So we've gone from a place to a people. Not to confuse the house with the body of Christ, but the house is a reference to these priestly duties that you and I now have. Again, that would be things like prayer. So the readers of this letter and the writer himself made up the house if, and there's an if there, if we hold on to this courage, this hope that we take pride in. Now that's a big idea in just a few words. He's incorporating a lot of this Old Testament imagery that's, that's not apparent. Uh, it, I'd spent a long time going through this getting ready for today. And the writer's concerned that his Christian brothers, as he unpacks it, down in verse 12, his biggest concern is that in them could be an evil, unbelieving heart that could lead them to rebel against God. Again, we're not talking about loss of salvation. That's an important point. But as it says in verse 6, losing their ability to function as a priest in God's house. So in the Old Testament, priests... Uh, if you were born a Levite, if you were born into that tribe of Levi, you could be a priest. However, some of those priests backed out of it, and they didn't continue with their duties. And that's the picture that we have here, is a priest backing away from their duties and not functioning as a priest. And probably the greatest priestly privilege that we have, again, is that we can directly approach God. You know, if we were to get into a time machine, and we could go back, into the Old Testament, back when the presence of God resided in the Ark of the Covenant. The only person that could go into that room was the high priest. Anybody else was going to be struck dead. Well, guess what? We, we could enter into the Holy of Holies. We're covered by the blood of Christ. We can directly approach God because of the faith, because it's Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. Now, if we don't have a time machine yet, this is what I believe to be true. But this is the difference in the program. They would have thought it phenomenal in the Old Testament to know that people in the future would be part of this new covenant and agreement that we could approach God directly with Jesus Christ himself being our high priest. That's a huge shift from the Old Testament. So we have this warning about a Christian losing their priestly role because of this, this doubt, uh, this unbelief. So the warning is against becoming this ineffective, weak, functionless Christian that's sort of riddled with disobedience and doubt. And then we're set up for the next part of this chapter, this negative example where the Israelites exemplify faithlessness. Uh, and that's starting in verse 7. So if one doesn't hold fast, as it says in verse 6, they could face the same consequences that we have described in verses 7 through 11. This is quoted from Psalm 95, and it's intended to be a warning. So what, what was it that happened, like, like in the Old Testament? Um, the Israelites were, were promised a land flowing with milk and honey. 
So they left Egypt, right? God did all kinds of signs and wonders. He gets them out of Egypt, and they start marching towards the promised land. Okay, this takes us to the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers chapter 11. They come, they approach the promised land, and they, they send some spies in there to see what it's like. Twelve spies. They come back. Ten of the spies said, forget it. These, there's giants there. We'd be nuts to go in there. And two guys were like, no, we can take them. We can take them. Well, the people got scared. And even though God said, I'm going to give you this land, they said, eh, no thanks. So they were disobedient. God's, God's temper burns against them. Moses appeals to God on behalf of the people. He said, well, you're going to, this generation is not going to enter. They're going to wander for 40 years. This whole generation will die, and the next generation will enter the promised land. So because of their, dis, their, their disbelief in God, it led to disobedience. And then we see it in verses 10 and 11. This is God speaking. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. Notice it starts with disbelief. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, meaning they will not enter the promised land. Now, that is not to say, uh, this is not a judgment as to whether or not these Israelites went to hell, okay? That's not what's in question here. That's not what's in view here. But they did die in the desert, and they didn't get to enter this land of Canaan. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't end up like these Israelites. Don't do what they did. That's what I'm telling you. And then it says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Some versions say to forsake or abandon the living God. Some say to rebel against the living God. It's a warning. Don't give in to unbelief that leads to disobedience. Then instead in verse 13, he says, But exhort one another, encourage each other every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, in the remainder of chapter 3, uh, he goes on re to, to repeat himself, reiterating the sin of the Israelites. They died in the desert. They don't enter the promised land. And again, that has nothing to do with whether or not those Israelites were, re were redeemed, as to whether or not they were heaven or hell bound. That wasn't what was in view there. He's, saying, he's not saying they were unregenerate, but he does say, and he, he sums it up in verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It was a penalty. It was a consequence. So clearly this is what we want to avoid. Um, it's this negative example of unbelief. So the question then comes to us, well, how do we do that? Okay, how can I be faithful? When, when they come knocking on my door, when they start, when, when the culture puts the pressure on my business uh, to not support any school that has what they would call a discriminatory policy, how do we do that? And I want to offer four actions that I think come out of this text. First of all, by finding godly heroes. Find some godly heroes. We need examples that we can look to of people who've lived out this kind of obedience and lived out this kind of faithfulness to Christ. 
I love what Elizabeth Elliot, she was the uh, wife of Jim Elliot, who was killed by the very um, uh, people group who they were ministering to. She actually stayed and continued ministering to these natives who killed her husband. She said, how else shall we grasp the meaning of courage or strength or holiness? She said, we need to see such truth made visible in the lives of human beings. We need to see lives that embody this kind of faithfulness. Um, I think there's a great many places we can find these kinds of heroes. I also think it's important to distinguish between superstars and heroes. There's a big difference between the two. But here's what they ultimately have to be able to do. They have to be able to show us how they exemplify Christ in their life. Christ is the ultimate example so these heroes we're talking about, the men and women who've lived out the faith, need to show us these aspects of Christ. His, his sacrificial love, his humility, his courage to stand up to a system that would end up taking his life. That's the kind of courage that we're talking about in these heroes. One of my favorites is a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp lived in the second century. And eventually, people hunted him down. They pulled him out of his house, 86 years old, put him in the middle of an arena. And people started to so pity him. As a matter of fact, the very people who pulled him out of his house and put him in the arena started to, get, started, started to have feelings of, of sympathy for him. And they said, would you just curse God and live? At this point, as, as the tradition says, he was already tied to the stake. The wood was already piled at his feet. And this is how he responds to that plea. He says, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme the name of my King and Lord. And that's how he was martyred in the middle of that arena. This is the kind of faith. I know we've all thought about, what would I do in that moment? Would I stay strong? But we've got these examples. Look, we're, we're not blazing a new trail here. Men and women have gone before us and they've lived out this kind of faithfulness. So look, find godly heroes, and then second, meet, meet regularly with Jesus. Meet regularly with Jesus. Now this does mean prayer, but I want to talk about more, um, more than prayer. See, if Jesus is truly our example, we need to be making it a, a habit of truly getting to know who he is. Um, who was he exactly? Because frankly, there were a lot of bad ideas very early on and that just continued right along. And, and many people would adopt bad ideas that were dispelled as heresy in the early church. So if we say we love him, if he's both our savior and our sibling, are we willing to do some work to truly understand who he is? So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a little homework. Um, there's a couple of videos I'm going to encourage you to watch this week, okay? I'm asking you to give up one hour of your time. Both these videos are online. This is a long web address. So what we're going to do, we're going to put it in the newsletter. It's going to come out this week. If you're not receiving our newsletter, if you just give us your email address uh, on the card that's in the seat back in front of you, Give it to the folks at the front desk. By the way, they'll give you a free gift. It won't be an autographed picture of me. 
<laughs> Disappointing, I know. You could have sold it on eBay for a lot of money. Uh, if you give them that, we'll get you on our distribution list. But it's two 30-minute videos talking about who Jesus is, a guy named Fred Sanders. He's teaching at Biola University to an audience of, uh, I hate to use the word lay people, but it's not, he's not speaking to seminary students or clergy. He's talking to folks who just want to learn more about Jesus. Two half-hour videos, okay? It's very, very good. Really, I would consider it to be essential information that we need to understand about who Jesus is. It dispels a lot of the bad ideas. It walks through uh, some real brief church history about what they believed about Jesus Christ very early on. So, just ask to give up one hour. You know, take, take one hour of your evening TV watching and check out these two videos. If you don't have internet access, we'll get you set up here at the church. One way or another. So we want you to be able to watch these two videos. They're very, very good. Um, and then there's another aspect of meeting with Jesus regularly. Um, in addition to thinking rightly about him, it's, it's prayer. And not just prayer, but patient prayer. Have you ever tried to spend time with somebody that you could tell really didn't want to give you the time of day at that moment? Did you really want to be around them that often? I'm going to encourage you to enter patiently into a time of prayer with Christ. Not just rushing in, because when we rush in, we have a tendency to, to rush back out again. I love what Guthrie says about that. He said, holy living is not abrupt living. No one who hurries into the presence of God is content to remain for long. Those who hurry in, hurry out. So patiently pray to Christ. You know, it's not an easy thing to do, frankly. It takes faith to pray. We're talking to someone who speaks back to us through the, through the written word. So patiently, faithfully enter into this time of prayer. And you know, if you're going through a terrible time right now, and honestly you're just like, Chad, you don't know what I'm in the middle of. It's a storm, it's a battleground. One more quote, same guy. He says, if the incessant crashes and explosions of personal challenges, be they persecution, sin problems, or other difficulties, threaten to drown out the voice of God. We can turn our trek back to spiritual health by seeking Jesus. He is experienced in making a way out of seemingly unconquerable situations. So meet with him regularly. Third, choose trust-based obedience. <coughs> choose trust-based obedience. Now, what does that mean? It means choosing to do the right thing, even though it doesn't seem like the right thing in the moment. So through this passage, you see several commands. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Don't harden your hearts. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Encourage one another daily. Now, what does this mean? This goes beyond an intellectual understanding of Jesus. This goes beyond our emotions. It speaks to our will. There's stuff here that the author is saying you need to do, okay? Um, this is volitional. We're always adjusting our lives to the Word of God. As a matter of fact, my job is to take the scriptures that were written 2,000 some odd years ago and then bring it into a modern context so that we can take a look at our lives and see, okay, how is, how is the way I'm prosecuting my life measure up to the way the scriptures say it should be done. 
And the author of Hebrews associates belief in God so closely with, belief, with obedience that to him the two are practically indistinguishable. To believe is to obey, and to obey is to believe. He's just, they go hand in hand. The Israelites were disobedient to the voice of God in the desert because they didn't trust him. They didn't enter into the promised land because of lack of trust. What is it that we do that demonstrates a lack of trust? We may act out sexually because we don't trust God's provision to meet our needs through marriage. We may steal because we don't trust God's needs to meet our provision. We're prideful because we don't trust God's view of humility. We want the opinion of others to be higher, not trusting God's opinion of us. That's trust-based <laughs> obedience. And then finally, engage in encouraging Christian community. Engage. By the way, I want to encourage every one of you right, right now. Because you know what? You showed up. You're here. Now, if you're listening at home and you're sick, you're where you need to be right now. <laughs> be encouraged as well. But you know what? It wasn't easy. It was cold. It was snowy. You had all kinds of reasons. But you showed up. Good job. Way to be here. Some of you, had, that was not easy to do. Um, encouragement is something that we absolutely need. As a matter of fact, in verse 13, um, the, the passage tells us to encourage one another daily. Don't let the day go on without encouraging somebody. Now, you may say, well, I don't feel like encouraging somebody. They don't deserve it. But do you trust God? He's saying that's the thing to do. It's not about someone deserving it or someone feeling like it or, or, or you not feeling like it. I came across this story. Um, it's of, an, of a nun who taught junior high. Her name was Sister Ambrosia. And she had a difficult student named Mark. And uh, here's what she said about Mark. She said, in an earlier grade, I taped Mark's mouth shut for talking too much. <laughs> I don't think you get away with this now, by the way. She said, now, he's one of, now he was one of my uh, students in junior high math. She said his class had worked all week. They were getting cranky. So for a break, she said, uh, I want them to write the nicest thing they could about each other's student and hand it to them. Or, or hand it in. She said she compiled the results for each student. And then on Monday, she gave out the lists to those students. Several years later, Mark was killed in Vietnam. After the funeral, most of his former classmates had gathered together. And Mark's parents were there. And he, they met with all of them for lunch. Mark's father took out a wallet of, in his pocket and said they found this on Mark when he was killed. This is a true story, by the way. They found his wallet when he was killed. He carefully removed a folded, refolded, and taped piece of paper which listed the good things Mark's classmates had said about him. And you know, Mark's other classmates were there as well. Another student named Charlie smiled sheepishly and said, I keep my list in my desk drawer. Another wife of a student said, Chuck put his in our wedding album. A woman named Marilyn said, I keep mine in my diary. A woman named Vicki reached into her pocketbook and pulled out this old frazzled list. Have you ever received a treasured word of encouragement? One that you're never going to get? One that's kind of written on your brain? I want to encourage you before you leave this building today, 
take a moment and encourage. Say an encouraging word to somebody. You have no idea what people walked in here with. Take a moment and say something encouraging. So putting this all together, be faithful and trust God with the consequences. Be faithful and trust God with the consequences. I want to close with a word um, from a guy named Bear Bryant. If you grew up, I, I was sort of in the South. If you, you know who Coach Bear Bryant is, highly esteemed. He was considered the coach of all coaches. And he had this speech he would give his guys before games. And he's saying that speech, he said, there's going to be four or five plays that will determine the outcome of this contest. Four or five plays that will swing the momentum towards us or away from us. He said, I don't know which of these plays it's going to be. You don't know which plays they'll be. All you can do is go out there and give all you can on each and every play. If you are doing that on one of those crucial plays and catch your opponent giving less, that play will swing things in our direction. And if we rise to that occasion on those four or five plays, we're going to leave here today a winner. So, you know, life is made up of these series of moments. And we don't know which of those moments is going to be the most crucial. We don't know which of those moments is going to be the most life-transforming. But in each and every one of those moments, we want to live with courage and hold with confidence that in which we have placed our hope. So stay faithful. Please pray with me.